You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Boss Hog of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 271 of East Central Media's favorite podcast. I'm Jeremiah Morrill. Uh, today, I'm joined by co-host slash executive video audio producer engineer, Zach Bircham, who's over there pressing buttons, but I think he's going to be joining us in the co-host chair. Our guest today is going to be James Seniak, the uh, Libertarian nominee for U.S. Senate, the, uh, the seat that's uh, on your ballot this November if you're a Hoosier voter. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, all the issues in the uh, in the U.S. Senate race. See where the conversation goes. James is a returning guest. He he was here uh, seeking the nomination in the spring, uh, won at convention, and now uh, now he's going to try to win win the whole darn thing. We'll see how uh, see how it shakes out. This show is about our lives in rural Indiana. We're here to push your boundaries and make you think as individuals. Sometimes we'll provoke you. Other times I might make you laugh. But hopefully you'll always learn something new. We just did twenty minutes on Patreon. Uh, Zach told a story that was like a whole life cycle. There was life. There was death. I think there might have been some blood. It was traumatic. Uh, it was it was it a was whole traumatic. a whole a whole deal. There's a fantastic T-shirt that uh, that exists now, thanks to one of our amazing listeners. Uh, so we'll if you check Patreon, there's photos of that in there. Um, there's uh, there's talk of Sun's Day, which is a new holiday. So it's very much worth your time and effort. To join and check that out, it gets emailed directly to you. If you join at patreon.com slash liberty, you pick your level, any level. Uh, the, uh, the bonus content gets emailed directly to you, and you also get into a super secret Facebook group uh, where you get to participate in the live chat and, uh, and watch it go down. So it's a little bit more free, a little bit more personality, uh, and it's literally the lifeblood to make this show happen. Uh, we do have sponsors on occasion, uh, like right now. This uh, this candidate series is brought to you by uh, Wyland's Flowers, Big Bounce, and the Slick Pickle. Uh, they have supported the candidate series since the very beginning, and they're awesome, awesome people. We appreciate them very much. If you like to party, if you're going to have a birthday party, or you party too hard and you need to have some flowers, hit up any of those groups, and they will take good care of you. Uh, we do have to say thank you to the patrons that give $50 or more a month. Each and every month, the uh, ask, the absolutely awesome, incredible Christy Avery, who uh, who participates in in the Wall Network at all levels, Jonathan Phillips at Andy Moore Buick GMC uh, over in Fishers, Indiana, and Anthony Meyer, who uh, as Dakota says, he distributes the memes for all of us. Uh, if you want some merch, there's a there's a link in the uh, in the Facebook chat that's happening now. The show is broadcast live on Facebook, as well as available on iTunes, uh, Spotify, anywhere podcasts are sold. Oh, what else do we need to talk about, Zach? Uh, we got an iconic read. I'll let you do that one. You can you can sell some health insurance for the network. Where's the read? Oh, okay. It's, this episode brought to you by Iconic Insurance. Fifteen percent of Americans are left to, to find health insurance on their own. You might feel overwhelmed, lost, or frustrated. If that's you, feel in control of your health with Matt Allen's help. Visit www.iconicinsurance.com backslash libertarians to get started. Zach felt overwhelmed, lost, and frustrated when I said, "Hey, can you do this read?" He's like, just panicked. Well, I didn't. I don't know where it's at. I don't. I don't look at read. I don't look at other people's screens. I was like, did, I was like, I'm looking at the show notes, and there is no read on here. So he doesn't have yeah. that black screen on it where you can't read it from the angle, does he? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all no. I'm not. Uh, I, 
I don't have time. For that secrets. panic wasn't the worst panic I felt this week. If you want to feel what the worst panic I felt this week is, <laughs> become a Patreon and check check on that. <laughs> Could have been worse. Could have been yeah. worse. All right. So the candidate series does continue. James, welcome back, my guy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here and uh, being able to talk about the Senate race and what's happening here in Indiana. So you've got your sea legs under you. You've been you've been crisscrossing the state of Indiana. Chasing, uh, chasing voters, meeting them where they're at. How's how's the campaign trail been? Let's let's remind folks of, I guess, who you are, where you've been, how how all this is working. Yeah, so I'm James Suniak. I'm the Libertarian candidate for the U.S. Senate race, and I, I got the nomination back in March. I'm a behavior therapist, lifelong Hoosier, and I really just have a passion for uh, individual liberty, making sure that our rights are represented well in Washington. And so I'm running on three primary things, fiscal sanity, uh, fiscal policy needs to change in Washington, medical freedom, and then uh, my vet care program. So those are all really important to me. And um, yeah, th- those are three things, but there's many more that I run on. And I'm excited to talk about a lot of those issues tonight with you guys. So how's the how's the fair, the, the fair cycle been? Have you been county fairs? You've been eating p- uh, tenderloins in every town? What's What's been going on? Yeah, so I've had several different tours. The first tour was a 15-tour town hall with the Democrats. We went to 15 different counties, including Henry County. So this is the third time I've been in Henry County for the uh, campaign. So really trying to get all over the state. And then the next tour was this uh, fair. And I don't even know how many elephant ears I ate. So, um, I probably gained a little bit of weight, but, uh, it was worth it. And I met a lot of Hoosiers and what I tell people is I have to go to people's communities if I want to truly understand their issues and be able to represent them. So it's actually been amazing and a blessing to be able to go all over the state. Um, again, I, I'm not even sure how many fairs it's been, but it's been enough. <laughs> so the event you went to in Henry County was hosted by the state Democrats, correct? Correct. But, well, so, but, but you're the only candidate that's shown up at every one of these is what is the rumor I've heard. Right. So there's 15 town halls and uh, the Democrats put them on. They made it a tripartisan deal. So any candidate could come. The Republicans gave a flat out no for their whole party. And uh, they wouldn't allow any Republicans to show up. There was rumors and they're just rumors. So I haven't confirmed any of this. Were there, were some there of the like- lo- local Republicans wanted to join. Um, but the rumor was that the state party said absolutely not. Nobody, as Rob Kendall would say, they had their thugs outside to make sure they didn't cross the line. Probably, probably. Um, but you know, thankfully the Democrats were open to actual debate at these town halls and, and I was the only one to make all 15. Uh, Tom D- McDermott, the Democrat for the U.S. Senate race, he made probably over 10, but, uh, he missed some of the important ones, I think, like in Evansville. And so I made it a priority to hit every single one. So how do you how do you get to all these? <laughs> a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, well, thankfully my work lets me off a little bit early some days, but uh, a lot of gas, and that's the thing that you know we've had a fundraise to make sure I can get the gas for all over the state. But I I've now re- started calculating the miles, and it's over three thousand miles a month. So I'm due for another oil change, like literally <laughs> tomorrow uh, after this trip. <laughs> So if you want to pay for James's oil change, how do they, what, where do they go to go hit the donate button to pay for you, your car maintenance, if nothing else, as you're traveling the state? Yeah. So if you want to buy a tank of gas or help me with my oil change, it's www.seniac4senate.com slash donate. Um, and you can also find my policies there, but really fundraising is really important right now. And that's part of that grassroots movement to get across the state. So the Libertarian Party. Uh, I, and full, full acknowledgement to, to the audience. They know, they know my history with the party, having been a party officer in the past and, uh, in tw- 2016 being the campaign chair for, uh, Rex Bell's campaign, the campaign manager. 
uh, as he ran for governor, we have the unique opportunity that the Indiana Debate Commission allows our candidates to be on the stage and participate in statewide debates. So the Debate Commission handles governor's races and they handle the U.S. Senate races. So how is the debate preparation? What's or I assume it's going to happen this year. What, do you have the details? Yeah. So this is this is awesome. First, uh, if you do have questions for the debate committee, tomorrow is the last day to submit those. So make sure you get those in. But the debate is October 16th. We're really excited that this is happening. Uh, we actually weren't sure that Todd Young would agree to a debate. Um, and the debate commission was pushing for three debates. I was pushing for three debates and we really wanted to make, uh, I, I believe in the principle of we serve the people. And when we talk about it being a public service position, we are hired by Hoosiers and by our constituents. And so I look at it as a job interview, right? And normally for most jobs, they're pretty competitive. You go to several job interviews. It might be a phone interview. It might be uh, the set, next step might be an uh, in-office meeting. And then usually they finalize the candidates with their last third interview. And so that's how I believe the debate should be is, is people should be able to interview us. And, but Todd Young said he'd only do one debate. Um, but that's enough for me to take the issues to him. And I'm excited to do that on October 16th. That'll be on Sunday at 7 PM. So, um, forfeit Sunday night football, but this is going to be worth it. And it's going to be a lot of fun to uh, bring those issues up. So where's it at? I know with Rex's campaign, we had one down in Evansville. I think we did one at a high school in Indianapolis. Where, where's the, where's the big stage this time? Yeah. So the WFYI studio is hosting it. I believe there is a small live audience and I'm not sure how people get tickets to that. Uh, they actually said that uh, candidates can't bring in audience members. So I'm not even aware of how people would get a ticket, but I do believe there is a small live audience for it. Um, but it will be on most PBS networks across the state as well as live streamed. Uh, and I believe the debate commission has more information on their website about how to stream it. So if, if folks want to ask the question, they go to Indiana debate commission.com, get their question in real quick. And, uh, and if there's an issue that you're interested in hearing, I, the cool thing is that I've got James on my show, so I can ask him any question I want to, <laughs> but there's, there's the opportunity for, for regular voters to, to get their, get their questions in. And uh, and see what happens. Uh, Mayor McDermott was invited tonight, but uh, we have not yet heard back from him. So if he comes popping through the door, we'll be we'll we'll throw Zach out and have him re- reset yeah. the mic. But otherwise, we're going to hang out with James. So what's the uh, wh- what kind of expectations do you have in, in this or race? Because I specifically for the debate. Well, for the, for the debate and for and and how does that translate into into vote voters hitting the ballot box? Well, I mean, so with the grassroots movement, the truth is not every Hoosier has heard my message. And my goal has been all along to make sure every Hoosier has that opportunity. Well, the debate will be that opportunity for every Hoosier to make sure that they understand what I'm about and the issues that are important to me. And what I think that will really open up is people will see that I, as a candidate, represent the majority of Hoosiers. And I really bring a lot of solutions and not just issues and complaints but actual solutions to the table that we need to bring to Washington and better represent Hoosiers. So uh, this is the opportunity to do that. And I'm excited to, in contrast to the other two candidates, show how my solutions actually are better. So Don Rainwater was a double digit candidate and won a third of the counties in the state of Indiana. When I first started following politics, I would watch a guy named Andy Horning and, and he would run for mayor of Indianapolis or governor of Indiana. And I would, I would see him in, in these debates, not to put any pressure on you, <laughs> but guys like Andy and their performances in these debates are the reason that I'm probably where I am now. 
and having been interested, having been involved and in, in having the experiences I have, um, I, I, I guess there's a lot of different ways to measure your success. Right, in, in right. This. And speaking of Andy Horning, I've had the pleasure of actually campaigning with him. Uh, he is running for Congress uh, this year. So it's been a pleasure to ha- uh, be on the campaign trail in his district. But uh, the pressure is is there. I mean, Rainwater did very well in the debates. Uh, Horning's always done well in the debates. Lucy did well in the debates. And, you know, I hear the strengths of each one, right? So Lucy, her strength was uh, being a clean candidate and really coming with solutions and showing, in contrast, that she's not going to do the mudslinging that the other two were, but she was actually about representing Hoosiers. Um, Andrew Horning was very good as far as uh, actual facts and and letting people understand how politics works, the details of that. So there is a lot of pressure there. Uh, I loved going to Rainwater watch parties, and he, I think, as far as just actual debate, uh, he's one of the best debaters that I've seen in Indiana. So that that was a awesome just to watch his debate style. And and that's really impressive. So hopefully I can represent the libertarian party well, but also take the best of each of those candidates and, and combine it into my race. Yep. Well, you've got to be your own voice, but there's a, there's definitely a foundation of success that's been built over the last 15 or 20 years for the party. And it's, you know, and, and you're laying the foot, footwork for the groundwork for the next crowd too, right? Right. And I mean, you, I will be my own voice, but the reality is, is you look at positives and you look at ways that, uh, really communicate well and, and you take success from other people and look and build on that. So yes, it is my own voice, but there is things to learn from previous candidates. So, so Zach is going to help us with the, uh, with the conversational side here as we talk about topics and jumping in and, and asking, asking questions that you have as well. Um, he's, he's a hostile co-host today. He's, he, you're, you're producer, but you're not, you're, you're in, the, you're in this chair. Zach's only here. So he doesn't some get four letter power company. Couldn't keep the lights on for a neighboring <laughs> County and could have disappeared. It's all good. So I asked James what some of your most important issues were, the things you've talked about. So there's some things in here that, that are, that are your wheelhouse issues. And there's some stuff that I found interesting. And I think there's some things that, uh, that Zach will as well. But we've we've heard for a long time that veterans aren't taken care of, and that's that's I think we everybody has firsthand knowledge of veterans having difficulty with the VA with getting services. They've you know they've fought for this country. They've been they've served overseas, et cetera, et cetera. And when I spoke with you before this show, that was one of the very first things you said is that you're running on veterans' issues. Tell me tell me why that's at the top of the list or in that one of your core priorities. Well, first. Uh, there's many veterans and thank you for that service. Uh, so if you're not a veteran, you know, a veteran. So this issue is for every Hoosier and it really matters that we get this right. And Republicans and Democrats have failed veterans and continue to fail veterans and don't come to the table with solutions. So I I love this story because honestly, it, it helped build the momentum of my campaign. And I announced very early on that I was running for the nomination for the libertarian party. And at the time I was bartending on the side more as a fun gig, but it was something I enjoyed to uh, talk to the people coming in and a veteran came in and said, I heard you announced, but what are you going to do for me? And so I, I rattled some policies that I thought would matter to veterans. And he goes, no, 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 no. Those are all good. But I want to know specifically what are you going to do for me as a veteran? And this was really a moment in the campaign that I had, I had to take a learning moment, right? Because I realized I'm not going to have the solutions and media answers for every single question that comes my way. And, and this is where I turned it and I said, okay, what can I do for you? And he goes, look, veterans aren't being taken care of. Uh, they tend to 
gravitate towards rural areas. The VA offices are all in metropolitan areas. Many don't even like to go to a metropolitan area to get service. And then he, he mentioned how inconvenient it is, how long the times are. And he's like, you've got to do something about the VA office. And so this was an issue that uh, I realized was very important right out of the gate. And I said, we're going to do something about it. So I took it back to my team. We brainstormed. We came up with ideas. And what I really love about this is that it's actually my team and my uh, policy. It's it's not something I got from somewhere else. It's something we designed to serve veterans. And we call it the Vet Carrier Program. And what it is, is it utilizes a veteran's personal care account, which if anybody's familiar uh, with a health savings account, works very similar to that. And it's a tax-free where it's a unilateral move from the funding from the VA, but it goes into the VC uh, veteran's personal care account. So, so what it does, it gives that funding so that they can get more immediate care. They could go to whatever physician best meets their needs. So that, that could be a specialization. It could be mental health. Um, so if I live in Henry County, Indiana, and I don't want to go to Fort Wayne or Indianapolis for care as a veteran, I could, I could see a local doctor. Correct. And so this would give that freedom for that. And then location. So that's what you mentioned with Henry County. Uh, whatever location is most convenient for you, you shouldn't have to drive an hour for medical services. And I know there was some things done within this, and I actually bought it and started walking some of those things back. Uh, but we could do even better and further. And so this program looks at that and looks how to expand those and really meet veterans' needs. I'm tired of Todd Young using veterans as pawns issue. If you look at the PACT Act, he specifically voted for a bill. The wording never changed, right? And then he voted against it simply because he was upset with Democrats. And then he voted, uh, he got backlash from veteran groups, and then he ended up voting for it. But what I look at is Washington, not just Todd Young, but Washington as a whole, has used veteran issues as pawns within their policies. I want to take that out. I want to take the game out. Veterans don't deserve that kind of treatment. They deserve a plan that actually serves them, and this is that plan. So I'm I'm excited to present that. So the health savings account is only one side of it. The other side of it is the long-term care needs. And, and those get more expensive, right? We are talking amputees, uh, cancer, different, more expensive long-term care. And so th- what I did is I designed a form that's going to be a one submit form, but the veteran doesn't even submit this form. It's a, a medical need of care form. And that is submitted by your doctor, just stating to the VA, yes, he does need this specific need because of this specific issue. Uh, it gets a quick approval and then those funds come out of that specific plan. So there's two sides to that. And then the third, which I'm just now starting to talk about, I don't have a fancy name for it yet. So I haven't really presented it too much yet, but the third part of this plan is uh, I realized with the homeless rates and the suicide rates that we're really not doing well for our, our veterans coming home. So right now my, my non fancy name is a reverse boot camp, but the idea is, is that we need an intensive training and set up, veterans for success. So as a behavior therapist, we talk a lot about setting up clients for success, but this is the same thing for veterans. We have to set them up for success. So this is a plan that is a couple weeks where it gets them set up with a job that's really convenient for them. It gets them if they need mental health services. Uh, it doesn't tell them where to go, but it gives them the ideas of where they can go to get the, that help for whether it's PTSD or other issues. But what it does is we train them to be soldiers through boot camp but it allows them back into the civilian life with a more successful rate. And I believe that this will serve veterans in, in a great capacity. And I'm really tired of the Democrats and Republicans failing on these issues. That's fantastic. The, the other question I have relating to, I guess our military and foreign policy, 
for the folks that aren't out quite yet is we've the president maybe two weeks ago was on 60 minutes and he had some and it, once again if you're a patron you get a copy of the show notes and there's a link in there uh, the president was asked about supporting Taiwan uh, in their independence uh, potentially and saying that hey yeah there was the possibility that the US would actually get involved which is something new that, that I don't think American policy had ever been there before. Can you share your views on if the United States should have an, I guess a uh, a non-interventionist foreign policy? If you think there should be an active military and you know geopolitical sides, I know Senator Young has one of his interests has been has been uh, international affairs. So, how would a senator uh, Seniak behave? Yeah, so the first and foremost thing I always look at is I, I want to preserve peace, but with within context, we aren't the we shouldn't be the world's police. We should be looking out for America's interest um, first, and and that's looking out for the needs at home. And so when we're talking about intervention, uh, specifically with Taiwan, Taiwan's a very interesting case. My sister actually was a foreign teacher there for a bit, and I actually paid through the Chinese government to teach English. In Taiwan, and Taiwan's very proud of their independence, um, but America has never actually acknowledged that independence. So, very interesting dynamic there. But when we look at when we should intervene, uh, I, I believe that we really rarely should ever intervene. And as a military, we I look at Iraq, for example, and um, we didn't have a plan there. Uh, we spent twenty years there, and this contributes to how many veterans we have. And the needs that are coming back, and we see the consequences of this. And whenever I, I look at intervention, I first want to look at those who are we're sending overseas. We're recruiting soldiers in their high schools. Um, we talk a lot about in the mental health field how brains aren't fully developed to 26, so they're actually at a very vulnerable stage in high school. Uh, when we're sending soldiers overseas, we have to look at their care and why we're sending them. Uh, what uh, is America's interest in this? And at this moment, I don't see us intervening in a positive way. Um, I do look to preserve peace. And with Taiwan specifically, you know, I, I would be advocate for their independence. But we also don't want to uh, start a third world war immediately. And we're looking at Russia right now with Ukraine. And so these are very tricky issues. Uh, there's not very simple solutions. But I am a peace advocate. And I really want to make sure that when we intervene, we have a clear strategy of why we're intervening and most importantly, an exit strategy. Uh, if we don't have an exit strategy and a goal there, uh, then we're not doing ourselves any favors and we're not doing our soldiers any favors. Pull your mic just over just a little bit. There you yeah. go. That'll, that's my, that'll help. It's, it's clipping just a, just a touch at times. So an interesting thing that I heard you say, James, is that you, you touched on mental health again. And I, I think we may have talked about it in the Patreon portion of the show, but your background with regard to mental health and, and working with folks and having an understanding. So my degree is a, a bachelor's of science in human services, which is a general social work field. But what I currently do is behavior therapy. And I specifically work with kids with autism. So it's a very specific field, but I have a, I have a broad range of knowledge of uh, mental health issues. And, and I've studied a lot about uh, the brain and how we can interact. So uh, my first concern is for individuals and helping them succeed, setting them up for success. And really when we look at foreign affairs and soldiers and specifically how all this relates, we, we have to make sure 
uh, that we're taking care of our soldiers and the mental health there. So war is definitely a traumatic experience. It's nothing to take lightly. It's nothing to tweet uh, simply about we should go intervene immediately. Uh, that's not taking those minds and uh, hearts seriously. No foreign policy <laughs> by Twitter. Correct. Um, <laughs> and, and I've seen it done by not just, you know, we can immediately talk about Trump's tweets, but uh, Todd Young, uh, during the Ukraine, I believe it was within the first week, maybe two weeks. I'd have to go back and check the exact date. But he put on his Twitter, we should go intervene immediately with soldiers on the ground. And that's not something to take that lightly. Uh, it's not something to tweet like that about. We need to uh, look at the consequences of these decisions. And, and they are great consequences. So we have a Patreon member, Nancy Custer, who's also a Boss Hog alum. She was uh, she ran for state representative this spring. That's how we got introduced her to her on the program. Uh, and Zach, you've got the bonus question. Patreon, the po- Patreon uh Tap in. Yes. So what, what's going so, on? Yeah, I was trying to because it's a good question. It's very detailed though. But she, um, she's kind of plugged into education, and she's she knows there's educational crisis in the country. Um, and she, um, given your occupation, what's your stance with the U.S. Department of Education, um, and how can uh, how can you advocate for students with special needs to be given reasonable assessments to highlight the children's strength instead of giving the awful test that we all know and hate. Um, that oftentimes kind of undermine their self-confidence. I think that I've, I'm betting she's seen this. There's a question evidently in one of the tests about getting a fish up a tree. Um, that's fantastic. That might just be just an example of you're trying to make a kid. It may not be a testing kid. I think it's from a take Dr. A test. Seuss quote uh, yeah. where they talk about. But just And she mentioned funding behavioral therapists in classroom or in schools um, and just helping with the general mental health of students in schools today because of the way the testing is. And I mean, yeah, that could be as much about if you're not a good tester, school is miserable because you have all these tests that come up and some of them decide whether or not you get to graduate and kids stress out and have meltdowns over the test because they're told how important they are. Um, so what's your, your views and your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I love this. I, I don't talk about it in my top three issues, but it actually has become one of the most important issues over the campaign trail because I have realized there is a crisis within, uh, our educational system. And uh, we see teachers leaving because they can't even do their own job. And I, I, we can point to simple issues like teacher pay, but it's not just teacher pay. It's the fact that our government and the way we have, uh, especially in Indiana specifically, because Indiana actually has most of the policy. Uh, we'll talk about the different split there, but we've become so test centered that teachers aren't even able to teach in the classroom. A little bit of my background. So I am a behavior therapist. I mentioned that. But I did spend a whole school year within the school system and uh, learning a lot alongside with teachers of how school systems operate, especially with uh, specifically autism, but also just the general idea of high schools and and the policies and politics there. So there was a lot to this question, and I want to address most of uh, all of it. Um, But the first one the Department of Education. So when we talk about federal funding for schools, so this is the part that we split. So it's eight to 9% of your local schools is funded by the federal government. But what I actually look at is how much they influence policy within that eight to 9%. So a very specific example would be during COVID. uh, A lot of schools decided not to wear masks, but they always required them on school buses because the federal government said, if you want this funding, or specifically school buses, we, you have to do the mask. So what they do is they control a lot of these small issues within um, from the federal standpoint 
even though it's only 8 to 9% of your school budget. What I would like to see is a reallocation of those funds. I believe we can get teachers better pay. And I believe we can do that by redistributing our taxes. And, and when I look at the federal level and how we represent 50 states and um, the Americans that are so diverse in our country, we can't represent all of America with our pol- one individual policies. So school issues belong with local issues. And when we fund it from the local level, that 8 to 9% would go much, much further, especially to special needs, if we localize that funding and made it available to the public schools. Uh, within school policy, I do believe in school competition. I do believe that private schools and homeschools and uh, online education are all valid ways to educate your kids. Parents should have those choices available to them, and those are also important factors when we talk about educating the next generation. Something you mentioned about school being absolutely uh, terrible if you're not a test taker. I look at, and I think the shift was when I was going into high school, uh, maybe a little bit earlier than me, everyone was pushed to go to college. College is the only way to uh, make money. Uh, it's the only thing that you can do. You're pretty much, if it wasn't outright said, you were made to feel a loser if you didn't go to college. But the reality is, is that's not true. When we look at trade jobs, they often, a lot of those trade jobs make more than I do with a college education. And uh, trade is very important. And so when we look at You'll how we make it a lot more once you're this rich Congress, <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps. Um, but so when we look at setting up kids for success, we have to look at what is not just uh, what we think their future should be, but setting up all kinds of success. So when we talk about trades, making trade schools more available. And I, I believe that we currently are failing our kids in putting them down one track lines, uh, and we need that shift to say, hey, mechanics are great jobs. Uh, you know, electricians, we have all these jobs that really are great jobs. And we, we need to make those more available in school systems so that they're set up for that success, no matter whether they choose an academic path further to further their education or whether it's a hands-on career. Um, so really, there's a no one size fits all in education. And I think that's the important piece that's missing. When we do this testing the way we do it, it's a one size fits all, but we're all individuals. We all have unique qualities. We all have strengths and weaknesses. And so we need to build on those and we need to give teachers ability to see that in their students and to be able to say and guide them in a direction that is going to set them up for life success. I mean, these are very serious years where you're deciding what kinds of careers that, that may be your lifelong goal. So some of us are are cut out for uh, for white collar jobs and have our have our college degree, and others are you know when I try to do something this weekend uh, myself, I I slice my hand open with a with an impact and didn't put gloves on like a moron, and you know I'm probably going to lose my left hand over the whole thing. Uh, so there's there's guys that are made for the trades, and there's there's fools like me that went to went to college. Uh, the federal government has been dancing around the issue of federal student loan relief and the president made an announcement that said, Hey, $10,000 in forgiveness for everybody, 20,000 for Pell grants. I think the CBO said it was like a $400 billion program as the, uh, the number that's coming to mind right now uh, in the first scoring uh, Senator Seniak, how, what, what response do you have to, to, federal student loan relief and what, where do we should be here? Uh, so 
before I get too much into this, it, it's a very complex issue, but the, my first policy, and it's been stated several times on my uh, social media, is that I'm not for the federal relief that they're presenting now. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, we can talk about how student loans did take advantage of kids. Uh, the reality is, is very much so we had policies that took advantage. But the reality is, is you still sign that contract. But there are ways to help. And, I, and I'm one of those ways that I look at, even though I'm against uh, the, whether it be 10,000 or um, it may be further and it, who knows, they might push for all debt relief, but there's better solutions. One is uh, to not interest rates. Look at the interest rates, either lower those or bring them down to zero. So people can actually pay back their debt. But this, when we start looking at this relief, it actually creates a very unfair system because there's, Many kids who decided they couldn't afford college. Uh, I look at mine, and even though I did afford college, my first two years was at Ivy Tech where I paid out of pocket. Uh, my parents helped pay out of pocket. But those two years were community college and then two years of private, which I still ended up with student loans. But everybody had to look at college and say, can I afford this or not? And when we're giving this relief, it's not a fair system to say, yes, we're going to benefit those who decided to get into this debt. And... Um, to uh, put that burden because it comes out of tax dollars on those who chose a different path. The folks so, that did trade school. And right. I have a similar background. I, I, I did two years. I'm an, I've been Ivy Tech. It was Community College of Indiana when I graduated from Ivy Tech, I guess, in 2006. Uh, but yeah, I did a two-year degree there and then two years in Indiana Wesleyan. And I, I was able to get my employer to pitch in and I paid for it out of pocket. And we, we got through without student loans. Uh, then I, then I got this wedding ring and I got my, I got my share of student loans out of that. Uh, so it, 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 you know, it affects everybody, but it's a lot like Obamacare to me where you, you've created a program that's, that's the little cherry on top where you, you've got folks that are going to want to get re, you know, it's promised at this point, walking it back is going to be horrific and you're going to be like the, you're going to be the guy that drowned kittens. If you, if you, you know, if you try to walk it back at this point. Well, and there's also very complex issues within this. Uh, before that student relief was announced, there was, uh, and I know this because I worked with a teacher who actually got this specific student relief, but there's a relief where uh, they looked at a specific college in Indiana that was actually corrupt and uh, ripped kids off. And the degree was pretty much a fake degree. Uh, well, I, the degree wasn't ITT fake. tech, right? Correct. Yeah. So they actually did look at that and actually release them from their debt, but that was a whole scam artist. Uh, and that was a whole different dynamic. So that was fraud. It was fraud. Right. And, and, and I actually, in that case, I think that because of that fraud, it wasn't the wrong move. So there, again, this is a very complex issue. There's many segments within it, but part of the ITT tech, when I was talking to him about this issue, he said, look, because of what the government uh, did uh, and they made it so easy to get student loans, ITT tech just took advantage of those student loans and just racked up my debt intentionally, knowing that uh, they could do it because the government was allowing them to. So there's a lot of government issues within the loan uh, progress before our the loan process before we even got to this point. So, and if you do forgive loans, that's great for the folks that are there right now, but I don't know that it does anything to control the cost of college going forward. Right? No. And, and college did shoot up because of how the loan process works. So that leads us into another issue that I know you're passionate about, and that is government spending. 
right? Yep. yep. It, it, the uh, the machine goes right. You, you're you've got more money being printed than ever before. You've got massive massive federal deficits. I guess this year they're they're claiming that the deficit actually was cut for the first time in probably my adult lifetime. What's the monetary policy of future Senator Seniac? Well, look, if we want any economic opportunity for future generations, we have to do something now. Uh, the, the, the whole kicking the can down the road continually is just not going to work. And I, I really want my nieces to have a successful environment where they can innovate, where they can uh, have the opportunities. And I look at the debt and that as a whole is, is not a good thing. Uh, you can look at your household budget and understand uh, debt analysis and, and can you put it on a credit card, but how do you pay it off? But we've come to a point in our country where we can't even pay it off at, at the, and we just keep adding debt. So there's a lot of plans to this. I believe that there's an incremental approach to reduce the spending and similar plans to like Rand Paul's penny plan. Uh, there's probably a few tweaks I would make to that plan, but it's a solid plan to help us get on the right, uh, right track. So I'm really looking at these policies and saying, how can we do better? A balanced budget. Uh, we need to stop printing so much with the Fed and inflation rates. We see that right now with 9% inflation rates and how much the Fed has been printing in the correlation of the two. We, If we want to see inflation um, back down to a normal 3 to 2%, we really have to cut the spending. And Todd Young has spent over $11 trillion or, or yeah, $11 trillion in deficit. He's spending more than Bernie Sanders. He's spending more than Elizabeth Warren. And it's things like the CHIP Act. And he, he's continually bragging about the CHIP Act on the campaign trail. And that's an act where he – it's cronyism. He favored a lucrative industry and put the fear-mongering of, well, we have to compete with China. We're at, he actually used the term um, – he's, he's trying to make the case that we're an economic war. war with, economic with China, war right? with China. And so he, he made this case, and he spent a ton of money doing it. But the cronyism, the fact that it already helps lucrative industries, it helps those who already uh, have. So the, the CHIP Act, for those that aren't, aren't completely aware, is this federal government program that's going to support companies like Intel that are trying to have domestic manufacturing of, of computer chips, which has been the big holdup in a lot of the supply chain, right? Correct. And also with a lot of pork added on as well. So there's, it's just astronomical amount of spending. And I, I really believe it's these kind of policies and bills that are not going to allow the next generations to have a free economy in the way we have. And uh, there's several things wrong. One, it, it's not true capitalism when you're interfering with the government like that. And then the other part is it's just corporate welfare. When we talk about how we support our societies, corporate wel- welfare just needs to go out. Uh, it doesn't create a fair system for up-and-coming businesses. It's, it's not a capitalistic approach. And it's something that I'm going to look at and say, look, we, we just can't support that as a nation in the way that we are. So those are some of the economic policies that I'm presenting. And, and I believe there's a lot we can do in this area to really rein in the spending. Unlike Todd Young, who said he'll continue spending down the same path. And I, I just look at the numbers of continuation uh, even from Trump to Biden, and it just keeps going up. When does it stop? And our politicians don't have an answer for that right now. Zach, you're the dad in the room, so I'm going to have you 
help out with this with this next part because I know I know the city of Newcastle and Newcastle Community Schools at the beginning of this school year had our own scare, uh, but there's been this discussion around school shootings. We no longer have any sort of a, a assault rifle ban federally in the United States. What I, I want you to share your I guess lead this part of the conversation, Zach, and then we'll we'll have James tap in. Yeah, well, if you didn't know, like on the first day of school, somebody accidentally tapped a button on an app and uh, triggered a live shooter alert for our school system at my kid's school. So they locked it down, and some kids in some schools were pretty scared by what happened. Um, but And I even saw a, a debate today pop up on Facebook. Somebody was upset that Walmart's corporate policy is that you can't open carry <laughs> in, their sto- in their store. And some people seem to equate that with concealed carry, which are two different things. Um, but... I think I just saw like was there a shooting in California? It seemed like every day. mass shooting seems to be such a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. I think it's like three or more victims, which seems to be you, know, you could have a, a house party with that happen, and it's I don't know if it's a mass shooting, but like everybody wants the government to jump in. They want the government to fix things. Like assault weapon ban. The first thing I thought in my head when you say assault weapon ban is well, let's define assault weapon because for some people it's a visual thing, which has no bearing on the use of the weapon necessarily. It's like Nerf guns look really cool and they look really dangerous, but they're not. They shoot darts and there's some rifles that aren't really that dangerous. They just look dangerous. And so they define it kind of as assault weapons for people. Um, but where do you think the government's role in that is? So again, there's a lot of parts to this question. Uh, starting with the school, I, I worked in a school and even within my behavior, uh, at my personal clinic, Uh, It was just announced that we're going to have an active shooting drill. So I don't know what that looks like yet, but everybody's considering this. And it it is a real concern. I mean, nobody wants to see children hurt. Nobody wants to see innocent lives taken. Uh, We will look at what happened in my hometown of Greenwood, where a shooter came into the mall and just started opening fire. And um, fortunately, because of a hero, uh, it was stopped pretty quick. I think 11 seconds. Uh, if I'm yeah. remembering that stat correctly. Uh, and that was due to constitutional carry. He actually didn't have a license to carry as far as the old license in Indiana. Uh, he was just carrying because of constitutional carry. So there's definitely a lot of dynamics to this. But the first thing I, I want to point out is, is that mentally healthy, healthy, happy people who have a future to look forward to are not committing crimes. So th- this goes back to a lot of what I'm talking about. Create, they don't commit violent crimes. And this goes back to a lot of what I talk about with mental health. So we definitely have to look at the mental health part of this and and make sure that people have access to that and it is available for them. Because if we can start stop a shooting before it even happens, that's the first way of creating safer environments. Uh, As far as gun policies and and looking at how we uh, defend ourselves and defend our children, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the school specifically in a minute. But I, I do believe in constitutional carry i believe that it is our right to defend ourselves and and i think when we look at gun control and how we uh as a society we push for certain guns and uh not to be available the problem you already mentioned is we don't even know we don't have any any defined terms assault weapons means something to every single person something different and our politicians don't even have a consensus of exactly what assault weapon is so where do, where do we draw that line? And then with specifically uh, if we're banning certain weapons, how do we make sure that 
the elderly and those who can't wait on a police response, no matter how good your police system is and no matter how fast they respond, uh, there's still a time lapse. They would have never responded in 11 seconds at that Greenwood mall. They probably had a cop on, on duty, but even if you had to run from one side of the mall to the other, it's going to be minutes. Yeah. Seconds, yes. Right? Uh, correct. So we have to look at that time of response and those who have no other way to defend themselves need that defense. So shout out being fringe is a very important part of my campaign. And I do believe that that is a way that those who are more vulnerable can defend themselves. When we talk about specifically about schools, it's, it's a very scary situation. And uh, working at Avon High School, I, I believe that there's a lot of security measures we can take. Uh, when we look at that high school, they don't allow anybody in that um, you have to have two pass code for anything. So uh, as a teacher, you have to have a badge and then you have to have a number code. So nobody could just steal my badge and come into the school. And then we've had school board candidates come through here talking about rebuilding entryways into schools, essentially making it a fortress so that you can't just get in. Right. And and that's pretty much what the high school that I worked in did. Uh, if you did want to get in as a guest, you had to go up to the intercom. You had to sit, state your name. Then they had to figure out why you're there. They let you in. But even then you have to go to the front desk, um, which there's another door in between. So there's at least three doors before you can even enter to see any kid. And, and even then they usually don't allow you past that third door. They wait for the kid to come in. So schools can take a lot of security measures. I believe there's one high school in Indiana down South, down in Southern Indiana, where they had even more than that, where they had fog alarms and, and different input, uh, implementing different security techniques like that. And I don't know the science and the numbers to look at that and how expensive it was, but I do believe there are solutions like that that really could make our schools safer because that is a concern. Uh, we we do have to have that concern. So would you be advocating for redeployment of federal funds to retrofit schools that are built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s before this mass shooting problem? But I, I graduated in 2001. So 1997, Paducah happened, and that was the first major mass shooting in a school in my in my memory was Paducah, Kentucky. And since that point, it's, you know, we're now 25 years later. It seems like it's continued to ramp up. Is that somewhat something the federal government should be involved in? Or is that a school board state issue, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, in my ideal world, <clears throat> excuse me, in my ideal world, I, I believe that that funding uh, should be reallocated to the local level. And the local level would have that funding available to them for that security purposes. So in the ideal world, it, it is a local issue, but as of right now, that's not how it works. And I wouldn't be opposed to looking at, uh, with the Department of Education, looking at security issues on that and um, seeing what we can do and making sure that, you know, our funds are being allocated for the purpose and safety of our students. So in an ideal world, local, but we have to take things incrementally and school safety is a priority. Take a, just a minute here, and we want to thank the uh, the show sponsors once again uh, for helping us out, making this happen each and every week in the candidate series. Uh, the Slick Pickle, Big Bounce Inflatables, and Wyland's Flowers, OG supporters of the Ball Soccer Liberty Podcast, uh, want to thank them very much for their continued support of the of this series. Hope that the uh, the folks in Henry County and Newcastle and across the state of Indiana uh, take benefit from it. Uh, and if you're from either even further beyond the Indiana borders, then you can look at uh, what a great thing we got going on in Indiana and candidates, uh, candidates that are on the ballot here. And 
And Go while ahead. we're taking a break, um, I wanted to give you guys something. I know you got something earlier and it was actually wrapped. It was pretty awesome t-shirts. Weirdly, I also brought you t-shirts. I did not wrap them. And funny story, my, my sisters give me a lot of grief because I have a lot of sisters. Uh, I have a lot of siblings, five siblings. And at Christmas time, what I do is I use one gift bag and just run it up and grab the next gift. And it makes it a whole lot easier. But I did not wrap your guys' t-shirts, but I did want to make sure you guys got Cineac for Senate t-shirts. Oh, that's awesome. If you need a different size, I have them in my car, but All I right. did bring those for you guys. Very nicely done. We always like free t-shirts around yeah. here. I'm hoping Landon Neen brings me one next week. Last week we, uh, last uh, spring, I got a uh, a Sproles first sheriff one. He dropped off, so we we collect the candidate shirts. We appreciate them very much. That's a good looking. Uh, the the logo is very familiar. That's the uh, the libertarian. A lot of a lot of the national libertarian folks have adopted this uh, this the Liberty Torch, <clears throat> the chicken on a stick, as uh, Chris Spangle called <laughs> Chris Spangle and Sam Sam Goldstein have called it over the years. Uh, but yeah, it's a that's awesome. Good branding. Good choice. They look a lot like my Chris Guffey for city council shirt from a few years back, back in the day. Former producer Chris Guffey. Sorry, I didn't wrap them in fancy that's, paper. That's but. okay. Listen, you can't you can't be as awesome as uh, as as our patron Nancy. Um. All right. Another issue that kind of wedged itself into the 2022 election cycle uh, was the Dobbs decision. So essentially, it overturned Roe versus Wade. We never had any federal government legislation on abortion. Uh, there was just a Supreme Court decision back 50 years ago, and now it's potentially in the hands of the U.S. Senate or it's in the hands of state legislators. Has this changed the race? Are you hearing folks that are passionate about back in the 90s? There were a lot of folks that were just one issue voters on abortion. Are you finding that to be the case? Are people are people making things known to you or what, how, how is this fitting into the to the cycle? Well, it's definitely become one of the top issues, uh, especially on the Democrat side. Tom McDermott, if you ask me, has made it his number one issue, and he he's campaigned quite a bit on it. And so it's definitely a very relevant issue to the, the cycle, and, and it's a relevant issue to Hoosiers, as it should be. Uh, when you ask about one-issue voters, I do believe there are still one-issue voters in abortion. To me, it's probably that number one issue. If someone's going to choose an issue, it's either going to be that. Um, I also find gun control as another one-issue vote. Uh, in Indiana, but I encourage people to really look at candidates as a whole platform and all their policies. I did write an extensive uh, opinion on Dobbs, and it was, it was printed in a couple of papers, but it can also be found on my website. So if you're really interested in this subject, I do encourage you to read it. I, I will explain a lot of it here, but um, written word also has a different ring to it. So I always have difficulty as three guys sitting around a table talking about abortion. It doesn't feel like my, <laughs> it never feels like my conversation to have. I'm going to be honest. Well, and, and honestly, that's one point the Democrats make is, is men um, shouldn't talk about this issue. But when I, when I bring that up, uh, I work primarily with females and, and they, they actually said, well, no, like it, it is a two way discussion. There are things um, that are very relevant coming from uh, the man's side as well. So, Looking at it policy-wise, I, I really think that this is an important issue, and, and I'm, I am pro-life, but I look at also that politicians shouldn't act as positions. And I think there is a balance here as far as how we look at this as a whole. And it, it is a national issue. So what I, what I, what I want to start with is the politicians should not act as positions. And during COVID, we're going to go back to vaccines. And again, specifically Todd Young. So vaccines um, were really pushed and there was a talk of a federal mandate for this specific vaccine. 
uh, it did get close. It got to the point where it was voted on for federal employees to have uh, a a mandated vaccine. And it wasn't even FDA approved yet. Todd Young did vote on that and said that he wanted a federal mandate for those vaccines. It was overturned by a court. Um, but these are, this is how close our medical freedoms are, are coming. And we have to advocate for individual choice when it comes for medical decisions. And I always look at pill bottles, for example, and there's always side effects no matter what you're doing. So we're going to bring that back to Dobbs. And there's a lot of medical issues within women's rights and women's reproductions. And we, we have to be careful not to infringe on those as well as look at the life of uh, when life starts and the life of uh, the baby as well. So the first, one of the first things I address is when does life start? And we, we, I say we err on the side of early and scientifically um, there isn't a consensus. It's not, it's, it's not necessarily a uh, consensus of as soon as the egg is fertilized, it, it may be when it... Uh, there are folks that say heartbeat. There are right. say, so people there's several. that say, you know, when you've got viability, it's a, a viability their own, its own DNA, conception. There's, there, there's anywhere to draw the line, right? It's a wildly right. complicated issue. And so with that, I, I want to err on the side of, of protecting life. And I look at, uh, I, I state that, for example, if a woman's pregnant and someone beats them or, or purposely harms them or causes harm to that, that baby, that individual, we should have those laws to protect that baby within the womb. Now, when it becomes uh, end of life decisions, I, I do acknowledge there are end of life decisions that are made and that's not just inside the womb. That's also outside the, um, on the other side. So end of life decisions are very real. I've, I've seen them made personally, you know, when you have to pull a plug that that's difficult. And, uh, when we look at any band, bands typically don't work in the way that people think they work. Uh, they often create a black market. Uh, we can look at, uh, alcohol and how prohibition ever worked there. Uh, cannabis, same thing, but, but bands always create a black market and that creates a very unsafe environment for, uh, this issue as well. Prohibition creates violence, right? Correct. Um, so again, I'm trying to, there's a lot of thoughts. So I'm trying to, uh, weaving them together, <laughs> trying to weave them together. So I have a little patience with me. Um, so we were talking about the, the band part issue. Uh, I believe the real, as a pro-life candidate, I believe how we really affect and reduce the rate of abortions is to prevent, um, to prevent, um, the pregnancy to begin with. So contraceptive options, economic issues, addressing um, those two things, and then addressing women's medical needs ahead of time. And when we look at male and female contraceptive options, especially making them over the counter, this will naturally reduce abortion rates. So we can automatically reduce abortions without even creating a ban. So there's that part. Then there's the part of supporting organizations like the baby box. And the baby box is a very good organization. Uh, It's not a, it's not a partisan. It's a private organization. We right. have we yeah. have one that was in, installed here in in Newcastle at the downtown fire department, just a few blocks away. And and a baby was just forfeited in uh, um, Morgan County. So what happens is it allows for mothers who can't can't uh, raise that child or or don't have another option to be able to safely give up their child to a loving home. And so that organization really does well in taking care of that. 
So these are the kind of organizations that I want to support. And I believe we can reduce abortion rates and we can do it safely while still giving that freedom for the medical choices uh, and where uh, women really have to make a decision of, um, for example, a friend who had cancer said and, and was pregnant, uh, chemo was going to kill her baby. Well, I'll, if we're supporting life, we have to support the life of the mother as well. And so this is my policy is, is let's support the things that will naturally reduce abortions, make sure that we support adoption, support foster care. Uh, I'm, I raised foster kids in my home. So that was a, a really blessing to see that side of it. But when we, I, I'm not for a lot of subsidiary uh, platforms, but if we're going to subsidize anything, why don't we subsidize adoptions and, and those kind of platforms where we can really support life. So Dobbs is a very difficult decision, and I acknowledge that it separates neighbors and it, it separates friends and even families and a very heated discussion, but we can have real solutions. And I think we can come to the table and talk about these things. Of And um, there's it's more than just people screaming pro-life or pro-choice. And, and that's what we got from our politicians before. When we look at the Republicans and the Democrats, all they would say is these. And now... These politicians have to actually define what they meant by those words. I think that's a great point, James. Rubber finally met the road in 2022 because I never thought Roe versus Wade would get overturned. It's been the law of the land for 50 years. My entire existence, not just my adult life, but my entire life has been in the Roe versus Wade era. And I think that so often you saw boilerplate. This is just standard Republican language, standard Democrat language. And you saw the Indiana General Assembly have to deal with it this spring where, oh my God, the they caught the car, and now now you're actually having to legislate on it. And it, I think you've you've got a very thoughtful position on it, and we'll see. You know, I it's very new in the conversation, but I don't think, and this is some a conversation that Zach and I and Dakota have had on the show and uh, with all of the guests. Don't want to respond too quickly, right? You need to give policy some time to have to actually have a national conversation to decide where it goes it doesn't have to be decided in 22 or 23 well and i want to talk about sb1 too which is is what um indiana passed and right now i believe it's held up in federal court but sb1 did not make either side happy uh the pro-life side said it did not go far enough because it allowed room for rape and incest and as a candidate i can understand that take Uh, i can understand that but those who said, well, you ran on pro-life issues and, and to me, it's still a life and they were not happy with SB1. But on the other side, everybody's screaming, this is a violation of my rights, my health rights. And really, it didn't make anybody happy. So again, politicians are called out and said, how do you respond to this? And a lot of politicians took back their words. Holcomb originally said he passed any pro-life bill that came to his desk. And then I think it was Two or three weeks later, he actually said, well, I, I'm taking that back. I got to look at this more extensively. And so our politicians are having to really make real decisions right now. And and as a politician, I don't want to just simply give a rhetoric that anybody can um, – that doesn't mean anything to anybody. I want to give actual meaningful conversation to this issue and tell people where I come from and look at uh, real solutions on this issue. We're starting to run a little bit long here on time, so I want to try to try to keep the conversation going because there's a few more important things that I wanted to wanted to touch on. Uh, and another big plank of your campaign has been just government involved in medicine. 
and I assume this is your way as a libertarian of winking and nodding to the cannabis crowd. It is. Um, but not, I mean, also it goes back to the vaccines and, and what I saw during COVID, but medical freedom is important and it's important to have options and those options need to be available. Uh, specifically cannabis, as we talk about is, is an important issue within the medical field. And we hear a lot about the opiate crisis, but what we don't hear a lot about is how cannabis is an alternative to opiates. And so we need to look at this and it definitely needs, we definitely need to open up our medical uh, freedom laws and, and allow alternative medicine and more ways for people to explore health for their physical being. So I assume less control by the FDA, more medical freedom, more experimentation by patients and doctors and the federal government got not getting involved. Absolutely. And, and looking at patents too, and trying to open the patent system up a little bit, make it a little bit more competitive as well. So we can see uh, reduced prices as well. Uh, free market medicine. So th- there's a lot to it, but uh, definitely something we need to look at in policy. Zach, you've been watching the weather channel this week. Not much. No, I've worked a bunch this week. I know the hurricane hit. It looks real nasty. I saw some crazy pictures of like, what was it? Like the Harbor, Charlotte, something Port Charlotte, Port Charlotte, I think, uh, Fort and, Myers. And the first thing I thought was, yeah, it was these, these areas where there was no water. And I thought to myself, and they're walking around taking pictures. So I was like, you know, that comes back, right? And sometimes it comes back much faster than a left. And so I was like, that's not good. I've seen some pictures. Um, Essentially, t- t- Hurricane Ian drained down Tampa Bay. Yeah. And then that water got forced right back up into uh, up into the Fort Myers area. And it came in, what, it was like one mile an hour short of a, being in Category 5. It yeah. rolled in 155 mile an hour winds, which is incredible. Um, and then I've seen some, like the people I know there, I know some people that are down there and they all seem to be okay. Uh, I don't think their cars got washed away. They got damaged by flying debris and or carports getting knocked over. Um, but I've seen some pictures of places that didn't, are doing a lot worse than that. I guess some areas that got leveled. Um, so no, I haven't watched much of it. I knew it was going to be bad because everybody knows it's going to be bad when Jim Cantori lands and they showed Jim Cantori walking in. I guess he got hit by a tree branch or something. Uh, so yeah, so I've, I've kind of been keeping up with it, but not super tight because I've been chasing children all week, but so, so we've had a few mega in the last 15, 20 years, some mega hurricanes hit, hit North America, New Orleans and Louisiana with hurricane Katrina, hurricane Sandy in New York and New Jersey, uh, and now hurricane Ian, uh, in Florida. And you obviously see a lot of involvement from FEMA and, and governors saying, Hey, we need some help. Uh, but at the same time, you also see some games being played amongst politicians saying, well, listen, Florida, you need to deal with this yourselves. Don't come, don't come asking for, for my help. What's the, what's the appropriate role for a Senator from Indiana and the United States government when, when this kind of things happen, this happens. So Florida, I mean, politically it's unique right now. Uh, they've, they've basically pushed for a lot of state rights. And that's probably why we see that political push and pull. And, and that is an argument with state rights of, well, should, should California, should Texas, should um, Alaska have to pay for everything going down to Florida, but all of their own natural disasters. (laughs) Right. Right. So uh, there's a lot of takes with this. And I, first I want to bring it back to Katrina for a minute. And I came from Elkhart County, which is uh, RV world. And uh, when Katrina hit FEMA, actually 
it, the economy was crazy because it, it boosted the economy a lot in Elkhart specifically. And they were pushing FEMA units. They had uh, an emergency need for travel trailers that went down to Louisiana for folks to live in. Right. So, <clears throat> so it actually did stimulate our economy up in Northern Indiana uh, with FEMA. Uh, that being said, I first always look as a libertarian of taking care of our communities. And, and I believe that we do that a lot with individual um, volunteerism. And, and I look at the tornado that hit here in Henry County um, and how it affected it was Rush, County. County. Rush, Rush County. County. Okay. Yeah, my folks um, apologize. It was Rush County. They're interwoven communities. But yeah, <laughs> that was, that was Rush County. Uh, so I look at that, that tornado and it did affect a couple of homes and, and the community that came together to really restore and help with that issue. Uh, I, I feel that when we put the responsibility on the government to help, we forget as individuals that that is first and foremost how we develop and, and help our communities. So we as individuals do need to take responsibility to care for our neighbors. Uh, I, I some Someone once told me that libertarians are so insensitive and they, they just don't care about anybody's needs because – they don't want the government taking care of people. And I said, no, it's actually the other way around. Uh, when you want the government to take care of your neighbors and you don't extend your hand, that's the more selfish way. So in these cases, we really have to extend our hand. Now there is a federal government role. And I was, I was thinking a little bit about this as, as I looked over the notes and I do believe that when uh, we're talking about our armies and we're talking about the defense of our nation and our security in our nation, we do have to have a secure nation. And sometimes that's even from weather threats and, and the security of, of Florida in this case. Uh, how do we look at that and making sure that we're rescuing those who, who need rescued, uh, providing temporary homes, whether that's uh, the FEMA units with the RVs, et cetera. I, I do believe that there is a role for the government to intervene and, and to make sure that we can even utilize mobily our whether it's the national guard or the, uh, the federal army, um, those, those are good ways to use our army and our military and good. That's an interesting point. So, you know, when the interstate system was built, FDR built it not only for commerce, but for, for government defense. So it's not an unreasonable response to say, Hey, we need to rebuild the roads and the infrastructure that were there. We've got it for, for, the health of our population, we got to get power back on. We need to get roads rebuilt. We need to we need to make sure that our citizens are healthy. There, yeah, there is a situation like where Jeremiah's parents' house gets hit by a tornado. Tornadoes are like, I believe that uh, Jeremiah used the term surgical in terms of the damage they cause. So you can't have neighbors. In the case of Florida, you might have to go like three cities over to find somebody who's not dealing with exactly the same thing that you're dealing with. So that is a good, that is a great use of the military. And so that might be a situation where like I could see the government intervening a little bit because the, the path is so wide for that kind of thing that you like said, you're, I don't know. And I'm not sure exactly how far it stretched forward. You might have to go to like Eastern Florida to not find somebody who's dealing with their house just got torn up or in some cases like I saw I saw a crazy video that somebody posted. I don't know why these people are posting these videos. They're on the first floor of their building. Water's coming in around their door. And then they look at the window, and the water level is like five feet up outside their window. Wow. And I'm like, and I looked, I'm like, there's got to be stairs. Why are they here? And I see stairs. I'm like, I would be up the stairs. I wouldn't be down the stairs inside the fishbowl, but. Riding it out. Right, yeah. But. 
you make a great point. Uh, this is a whole community. Uh, it's not just about the, the yeah. individual helping a neighbor. It's, it's that- the whole communities have to come and help this whole community. Yeah. And so that's where we do have to have some intervention. Uh, people tell me I run a very moderate libertarian platform. And, and I, I, I would agree because I do feel that there are roles. And this would be one of those roles where I, I do feel that the intervention is necessary. Uh, helping Florida as a community and, and a neighbor, Indiana. I believe we can do that as a neighbor to Florida to uh, encourage that. And I will say that, you know, my folks house got hit with the, with this tornado F one tornado came through, took out five houses. My parents were the very first one. Uh, I was in Muncie, Indiana, an hour away. I left immediately. uh, So about an hour and a half after the tornado happened, got to the house. There were 25, 30 locals from Posey township and rush County that had shown up and were already responded. The community turned out. And then two days later, we had a, a community cleanup event and, you know, James showed up, right? That's, that's the second time I met James was him. And he was there not as a, he didn't have a camera crew. He's a terrible politician. Uh, he, <laughs> I should have had a camera he, crew there. <laughs> he, just showed, he just showed up with work gloves and yeah. And ready to, ready to help, help pick up and do whatever needed to be done. But that's the community response that you're advocating for. Well, my philosophy is if I don't live my philosophy, then, what good is it? And, and when I see a, a fellow libertarian in need and, and um, that, that was important to me to make sure I was there, but that's, that's the kind of neighbors that I want to see the kind of communities I want to build is where people see someone in need and don't wait for a government to help. They interview, they just do it. Um, sometimes when we rely too much on the government, we, we forget how to extend our own hand. Two more quick issues I want to get to before we, before we wrap up. Uh, another another thing that you've made a priority in your campaign, and we've we've co- continued to talk about this at the local level, is criminal justice reform. We uh, we used to sit just a few hundred feet away from the county jail, and now we've we've relocated. We've built a brand new jail, a couple maybe a twenty million dollar facility, uh, two miles north of town. Uh, it sits right next to the state prison, so we've got a state prison, and then we've got a new county facility. That's essentially twice the size, modern Mac daddy built out pod system, the whole deal. Uh, and two weeks ago, the, uh, the county commissioners candidates sat here and they told us the new jail is full. So we've increased size and we have filled it up within eight months of opening a new facility. Something's broken, James. What's what, what do we need to do with criminal justice? Cause we've, we've, we've built, it's like putting a fish in an aquarium and we grew to the size of the aquarium. Well, I, I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to try to keep this um, to the point. But it is a very important issue, and and it's not talked about. The Republicans have ignored this issue, and uh, it's something that's very real to me. So I'm going to bring it back to mental health. Uh, when it comes to a lot of these crimes that we're calling crimes, they can be solved through mental health issues and addiction, help, and, and that crisis. Uh, so opiate crisis, uh, looking at that issue. How do we treat nonviolent criminals? And the reality is, is a lot of those could be better served with uh, mental health and uh, making sure that people get the help that they need, uh, extending neighbors to neighbors and making sure that we're taking care of our neighbors. So when we do those kind of things, uh, we, we will see a reduction. But the nonviolent criminals is where I really want to look at. And we have a, a system that a, by comparison to any other nation, we jail more in our populace than the other nation. And yet we call ourselves a free nation. So there's definitely a, a contradiction there. 
uh, we're not a free nation if we're jailing more than any other country by, by populace. So uh, nonviolent crimes, we, we have to look at ways to get uh, people more help. Then we also have to look at, uh, well, cannabis reform is one of those issues that I would really like to see, not judging people for. It's not just a mental health issue, but a financial issue. Uh, when we jail someone, it's a financial burden. And then how we treat um, minority communities. Uh, specifically, I, I look at, this is a very personal issue to me. Um, within my own family, my brother, who is adopted, uh, he he had a lot of PS, PTSD and there's probably some other mental health issues and the cops and the criminal system did not know how to deal with it. And eventually the judge dismissed that specific case because they said it was a mental health issue, not a criminal issue. But these are the kind of things we need to look at. And then ending uh, criminal, um, sorry, ending minimal sentencing. Um, there should be room for judges and the, uh, to be able to discern whether what kind of punishment is, is long enough for that individual. Uh, so there are a lot of things we could do within this. And I do wish we had a little bit more time to talk about this, but it's an important issue to my platform. And I think we could do a lot better with this. So starting to wrap up we'll, and we'll come back for some final thoughts, but the, the role of government, constitutional types will say that, you know, the bill of rights says that this is all the federal government is allowed to do. I don't know how many people actually look at that and say that that's the case anymore. It's just, when we have an emergency, the population seems to look to the government and say, Hey, fix this please for me. COVID was a great example of people just voluntarily turning over their responsibility and saying, Hey, please develop a vaccine for me. Please make sure that these people can't get to me. Please make sure that I'm allowed to work from home make sure a lot you know, of government right, intervention, <laughs> right? It was, it was asking for state, local and federal government to get involved. What's your philosophy on where the responsibility belongs? And is it, is it always the same? Does it change if you're in a, in a pandemic versus post pandemic? If it's, if it's 2008 versus 2018. So generally speaking, I think, in my moderate libertarian approach, I, the way I view government is that your federal government should actually be your smallest government form. And the reason for that is because when we're representing 50 states, uh, again, there's so much cultural diversity, so many different needs in different communities. Even like COVID, we saw how certain states, just because they're more spread out, didn't have the crisis that, for example, New York did because of the populace there. And so making one decision as a whole nation for every single individual is not an appropriate fit. Um, and that's why I advocate the federal government as your smallest government. And then your local government should actually be the most efficient, the, mo uh, the one with the most funds. If, if I had to keep my taxes the exact same, which I think they should be reduced, but if I had to keep them the exact same, I would rather see my federal taxes be my local taxes and my local taxes be my federal taxes. And so that's the kind of government I want to set up is where um, there's a lot of reasons for that because your local government, you can have more accountability. You can e easily go to, well, some cities make it more difficult because they do it during business hours, but 
if you want to go to a city council meeting, it's a lot easier to do that than advocate for anything on a federal level. You got to get on a plane and go find right. go find yeah. Todd Young or Mike Braun and, and get well, a meeting with their aide and hope well, you, that you but you really you actually do get listened to is have a lot of money and hire lobbyists to do it for you. So, so my ideal way of looking at government is that, um, so the locals should have more power and there are needs for the federal government. I mean, we talk about, uh, civil rights and, and some of the issues with the South and how minority communities were treated. Uh, there has to be some intervention at some points, but again, that should be minimal and it really should look at, uh, making sure that we we are treating people uh, as humans and, and allowing them to prosper and have freedoms. And if communities aren't allowing that, then um, those rights need to be expressed by the federal government. With uh, with Rex Bell, who I've obviously worked extensively with, it always came down to force and fraud, right? The government was there to protect you against force and fraud. So somebody was stealing from you, if they were going to violently hurt you, that's where the government had to get involved. Right. And, and that's what I look at the federal government as. So uh, back to the COVID, I believe that a lot of those decisions should have been left to local communities. Uh, I, I do believe even in the state of Indiana, our governor overstepped with uh, how long he he created the Emergency Act. And um, But on the federal level, there really should have been very little intervention. Um, but I think I talked about it on your guys' show during the first time I was on. The one thing I do see the federal government doing during a situation like that is passing on information. Uh, the research and information part saying, look, we do have a a serious potential pandemic pandemic. Um, These are the stats. These are the numbers we're looking at. Give them to the States, give them to health officials and allow the locals to look at those numbers and decipher how in their communities they want to look at that. One asset that I think the government has funded and, and exists is that you have research-based institutions that, that the federal government, Purdue University as example, and the land-grant university all have scientific research-based staff that's there to help respond in a time like a pandemic. And those are some of the resources where they can have folks that are essentially on staff with information that, that can come to the feds and be dispersed and somebody that is a based in your community, but believable and understandable. Right. Exactly. And, and information is, and knowledge is our, our biggest key to winning any battle, whether that's the pandemic or, or even uh, any issue we talked about, the criminal justice issue, the more knowledge we have about this, uh, this is how we, we really create thriving communities. And so passing on that information to make sure that people really know what's going on in this case, a health crisis is important role. Um, Wrapping up now, I guess we're transitioning into our official final thoughts portion. Is there anything that we needed to clean up, James? Is there folks, if they want to learn more about you, get involved in the last 50-some days before the uh, general election uh, as you're as you're trying to make the case to the voters of Indiana? Yeah, I mean, so I talked a little bit about my policies as far as, um, for example, the Dobbs. And, and I do encourage you to look at my website, www.seniac4senate.com. And a lot of those policies are on there. Uh, I also have an open communication link where you can send questions in. So I feel I, uh, if you, I feel all public, all public office positions should be public servant uh, positions. And if I'm not serving you, that's, that's, I'm not doing my job. So if you have questions or concerns, uh, bring them forth through the email. And, and I, I would love to address those. Um, I, I definitely, we talked about the grassroots movement, filling up my gas tank. If you do have an extra dollar and you like what I saw, uh, we are in need of donations, so you can do that again at the website. 
hashtag or not hashtag uh, backslash donate. And uh, really with the policies, I, I want voters to look at what, how Washington's serving them. And if you want to change, you have to vote differently. And I'm giving Hoosiers a better alternative on their ballot, uh, a more rounded and, and appropriate way to look at government and look at the federal government. So definitely consider voting uh, libertarian, but also James Siniak for U.S. Senate because we need change in Washington. We need to change how we represent ourselves. Uh, the elite mentality of what's happening in Washington is a very scary position to be in. So consider fresh modern approach. Look for uh, my policies and my actual solutions, whether it's solutions for veterans, whether it's solutions for the budget. Those are real things that we want to put forth. So um, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it and would love to have those questions from your audience I'm over my email. I'm sorry that uh, Todd and Tom weren't able to make it, but it meant that you got the whole show to yourself. So it meant even more time. It was nice. It was nice. Uh, Zach, do you have anything for us on the final thought side? Any questions and or anything you saw in the chat that you need that you wanted to bring up? No, no. Uh, I saw Nancy Custer, and I think that uh, Jeremiah popped the conversation or her follow up because she actually helps run a charter school. Okay, awesome. in Rush County, that I think Phil is one of those schools that fills a need. But I think she mentioned um, that like 50% of her students are considered special needs. I'm assuming that's like with IEPs and stuff. And so she was talking about the funding for that. So um, yeah, the education thing is go talk to teachers and educators locally and see what they're all dealing with. Um, anybody that's running for office and also anybody that's not just to see what they're, it's kind of fascinating to see what they're all dealing with. And like the schools that Jeremiah and I grew up with, just the way they're laid out. Schools, their systems are trying to get those redone now because it doesn't work. It doesn't work compared to what it was. But um, other than that, like the local thing, just because I'm, you know, me, car guy, ADHD, last Broad Street Cruise of the year is a uh, Saturday, so I plan to be there. Um, and other than that, just uh, enjoy the fall weather because it actually feels like fall, and it's we're getting more than twenty. Four hours of it. So, buddy, weather, my favorite weather. Oh yes, I broke. Out. I didn't know I was going to be on camera. This is an old, beat up hoodie, but it's my favorite hoodie. And I got out today. I'm like, yes, it's hoodie weather. It's one thing I wish about the campaign show that uh, I could just wear hoodies all the time. But... Oh, you can dress. Oh, you know what? <laughs> dress like Bill Belichick I'll t- and make it your. I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you what. Depending on the Rupert, crowd, Rupert ran for governor wearing tie dye. You can be the hoodie guy. I fully support. Yeah, it. depending on the gr- depending on where you're going, you roll into a hoodie and I'm like this guy. This guy knows what's up. He's like, he's just I getting can, stuff well, done. I can I, guarantee, James, that if you roll into Newcastle with a bush light in your hand and a hoodie and you go to the car show, you're going to pick up some votes. My first policy would be uh, no stealing hoodies, especially uh, uh, Xs. <laughs> Xs, yeah. I'm going to let Zach go, shift around to, the other, to his other unpaid job. I think I think you could make the bonfire circuit and just start picking up votes at random cornfield barn bonfires, James. We'll I mean, see. that's how I'd prefer to campaign. <laughs> well, we we thank you very much for for spending the night here with us in Henry County. Uh, glad that uh, you've you've matured as a candidate so much, and it's it's. Uh, I'm I'm glad to see that you come back to us with some thoughtful positions, and I think you're going to. Uh, represent your your ticket well on, in that big debate with uh, with the other two candidates on October sixteenth on uh, statewide television. Um, I think next week we've got the uh, Henry County Sheriff candidates coming on. So John Sproles and Landon Dean are scheduled to join us, uh, continuing the candidate series once again. Special thanks to uh, the Slick Pickle, Big Bounce Inflatables, and Wyland's Flowers for uh, for making this uh, candidate series happen. Uh, if you uh, 
If you have any reason to support one of the, somebody in those sectors, uh, think about those guys, give them a call, and uh, they'll take good care of you. With that, we thank you guys very much, and we will see you next Thursday.